to Who Do You Think You Are? with me, Elan Ezekiel. And in this episode, we'll be meeting Dr. Afira Gamliel. Afira is an academic in Glasgow, and she also is of Yemenite and Dutch heritage. This conversation is fascinating on many levels. We've covered a huge number of topics around both Afira's academic expertise, but also her own personal experience. She shares knowledge about the geography and importance of Yemen in the global Jewish story, her experiences of colorism and stereotypes around Yemeni Jews. Afira also shares her journey into a deeper, more religious and spiritual version of Judaism and what it felt to come back out of that. And what an integrated, diversified and indigenized type of Judaism might mean for the wider sense of what it means to be Jewish. Afira was a fascinating person to talk to and I hope you enjoy listening. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Afira Gamliel to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast. Okay, so hello. Uh, I work at the University of Glasgow as a lecturer in South Asian religions. Um, and I came to the UK after living in Germany for some time also to work in my uh, field, which in this case is uh, Jewish history in Asia, in the Arab world, and for me especially in South India. Uh, mm -hmm. Beginning, I was born in Israel 55 years ago to a father who was born in Yemen, uh, in northern Yemen, in Sada, and a mother who was born in Amsterdam. And you all know where Amsterdam is. So <laughs> for Yemen, look at the map. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Now, if you Google Sada, all you can see is, you know, ruins mm. and war and miserable people but it used to be one like my father remembered it as like some kind of paradise mm -hmm. more beautiful than Switzerland oh. with huge dates and coffee plants and like he always wanted to return uh, he migrated when he was about 12 years old then my mom was born this beautiful city of Amsterdam my mom's place both of them are Jews Uh -huh. uh, both of them, by the way, Yemenite Jews are, you know, this story about the Jewish gene, right? We are in the universe, as we can all yeah, yeah. talk about all kinds yeah. of funny things that happen. I find it really funny, but never mind. The Jewish gene, yeah, Yemenite Jews lack it. And the Ashkenazi Jews of Amsterdam, that my mother happens to be one of them, also like it. So uh -huh. biologically speaking, I'm not a Jew. <laughs> I didn't know that about the Dutch Jews. That's that's incredible. No, not the Dutch Jews ah. because the Portuguese Dutch you did you know that Amsterdam has yes. Sephardi Portuguese and you knew that, right? It's a famous uh -huh. thing. So that the Ashkenaz so the Portuguese Jews, all the Pereiras, etc. etc. They are fine. They are safe. Of course, they came from the very prestigious Iberian diaspora, right? <laughs> But uh, the Ashkenazi Jews of Amsterdam. I don't know why, of all places, it's just of Amsterdam and not, I don't know what, East, East European Jews or I don't know why. And also, please take me with a grain of salt. I'm just talking about things I heard. <laughs> this, is, this is, you know, I've come to you 
I came to you because I was looking for articles and insights into the stories of Indian Jewish community. That's how I found you. And that's your expertise. But, you know, obviously, when we spoke before this recording, you know, I realized there's so much more to your identity. The thing that relates to how this podcast came to came to be, which is understanding the construction of identity and what it means to feel Jewish but not necessarily from the European tradition. It's fine that you're not an expert on it. These are the myths that, uh, the myths and stories that shape us. I guess that brings us to the key question of the podcast, Ophira, which is, who do you think you are? I started thinking about genes because that is like, you know, the idea that there is a Jewish gene, right? Mm. That the identity of a Jew is already in the physics, you know? It's like a given. It's so detrimental. Mm. And I say, okay, on that level, excuse me, I'm not a Jew, right? <laughs> I don't have the Jewish gene. I feel perfectly okay with that. Why? Yep. Because I don't think that religion, culture, language, uh, inclinations, character, disposition, friends, family, connections, networks, etc., etc., are a genetic thing okay maybe diseases are maybe i just don't care about this idea okay so where is jewishness precisely it's a very abstract term right and if you ask me as a person what makes my identity so i start with i was born to x and y and i grew up in this and that place so mm -hmm. what constitutes me are all those experiences and like a conglomerate i'm very buddhistic in that sense you yeah. know the buddha sometimes i feel it he was so right whenever people talk about identity i feel it's overrated and the buddha said basically i'm paraphrasing yes there is such a thing as identity but it's a kind of an aggregate you know, it's a, it's a combination of several things that for some time is put together and then falls apart when we die okay. or when we lose consciousness or when we sleep, we can lose a finger. Does that yeah. make us less us? So this is yeah. the kind of Buddhist line of thinking. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's very right. But identity is useful in life. We cannot deny it. But so when you describe yourself to people, how has that description changed? Obviously, not perhaps when you're in academic circles, but when you're in the pub, right? And someone says, so, you know, so you're Jewish. Oh, you know, I can imagine, you know, perhaps there's a raise of an eyebrow. How do you define that? How would you describe that? So when somebody asks me, you know, tells me, oh, you're Jewish, I suppose they have something in mind and I just have nothing to add, <laughs> you know? <laughs> if you ask me <laughs> what... I mean, if they want, I mean, I don't force anybody to learn what the Jew is. You know, to say, are you Jewish? I suppose they know what Jewish is, right? Would you describe yourself, your, your dad's family as Adani or Yemeni? Yemeni. Yemeni, sorry. And they also refer to the Adanis as a separate category. Uh -huh. They are quite significant differences between the different regions of Yemen. Mm -hmm. And... In my family, at least, they also consider the Sanani's to be a category of its own, like Sana. They were like the elite, the big town, the big city. Mm. Uh, my father's family came from Sada, uh, which is a kind of a village, I think, or a small, smaller town. Uh, 
But interestingly, I found it on a 12th century map of the world that the Muslim geographer drew at the court of the king of Sicily. <laughs> it can be small, but... Very... And if the king of Sicily needed to know about it, it must have been important, right? That's you know, because uh... we Jews were there, you see. There you go. There you go. <laughs> of course. How does your ethnic identity, your background, how does that shape your identity in relationship to your Jewish identity? So I have to say something here. Being an Israeli and being a Jew are not the same thing. And for Israeli Jews, especially the liberal, secular, but Today, I more and more think that also for those who do practice Judaism and observe the commandments, etc., the Orthodox Jews, I think being a Jew born in Israel is you actually don't really understand what a Jew is, or you don't really understand, start smelling what the Jewish identity is before you go to Gola, before you... Uh, pray in the synagogue of Jews in Europe or mm -hmm. even in India or mm -hmm. in Morocco, where there is still a congregation, you know? Yeah, yeah. I had this experience in, I think, first in India and then in Amsterdam, but it may have been the other way around. I can't remember, but I went for a bar mitzvah in, uh, in Amsterdam or a wedding. It was like a period in which all of a sudden I find, my, find myself in my adulthood. And I was there in, in a synagogue in, in a congregation that is not Israeli or living in Israel and in a congregation in Amsterdam as well. So both, you know, from both parts of the world. And I started really all of a sudden discovering Jewish identity that I was not aware of as an Israeli, think about it. Judaism developed for 2,000 years in different places in the world. Identity is not re a real thing, but something that is dynamic and keeps on kind of forming itself in relation to contact with others mm. or with the environment or with material objects or with languages, etc., etc. So, and because I got more and more into the study, you know, of Jews of India and especially of the Malabar coast, I can also see it in from, you know, a critical analytical perspective, right? But I think there is a truth to that. Now, again, as an Israeli, that I never really, I just felt Israeli, a Hebrew speaker, okay? A, a, a half a Yemeni, half Dutch. Those yeah. things were the, you know, the kind of words, <laughs> the semantic fields, the semantic things that kind of constituted what I would call I or yes. identity, right? Yeah. What am I? I am a, the place I was born in is very important. I don't know how it is in the UK or in the, in Europe by and large, but I think the more you kind of enter in, the deeper you enter into Asia and the Asian experience and, and Israel, Palestine are a part of Asia and the Asian experience, right? When I've spoken to Israelis, there is that sort of um, relative comfort with, uh, with not questioning people's ethnicity as long as they're Jewish. It's fine. 
did you know when you're in the UK because uh, you're now in Glasgow? I mean, I'm guessing you and you've been around Europe. Do, how does your ethnicity present? Well, I think like the more the longer I live in Europe, the more I feel that what really makes up my identity is my color. Hmm. I wondered and... about that. Because it's yes. something I don't have. I have some of the things in you and I have in common. We're both mixed, both Jewish, but we come from different um, different Jewish traditions. When I'm navigating these questions, I know that because I pass as white, that my Jewish identity is not challenged as much as my dad's, as my dad is, as my cousins are, as um, some of my friends are because uh, their ethnicity challenges people's expectations of their Jewish identity. And I think in Israel, that isn't the case, always. So actually, there is research about that, a book that was based on research that is called Half Half. And the findings, it's in Hebrew, the findings are that, is that if you are born uh, with the father, father's name is Ashkenazi, and you also look white, mm-hmm. you pass for an Ashkenazi. You get more jobs. Yep. People treat you differently. You're, and the data is that you also are more successful socioeconomically. If you are born more with the dark colors, you look like, an Asian or right of Arab origins and but still your family name is then you have also better chances maybe but if like me you happen to be both of brown color and with a shouting Yemeni name Gamliel everybody knows it's a Yemeni that's it I mean forget it I sometimes have you know discussions on social media and you know I'm kind of talking in a passionate way it's social media that's what you're meant to do there not if your name is Gamliel, because people start scolding, scolding you that you are an angry woman, that I so empathize with, you know, what the microaggressions that black people describe or mm. people of Asian, you know, Bane people. I'm Bane mm-hmm. in, in the UK, basically. Yeah. This yeah. is what I know all my life in Israel. And I was never, you know, in Israel also, if you look at it from the bird's eye view, forget about my own experiences, but the, the bird's eye view is that you see that it's not about, you know, which ethnicity. That's why I asked, which ethnicity? Mm. Because it's not only that I am a Jew of color and half white, half white. Here the, the, you have all those surveys. What are you, right? Yeah. And there are categories and classifications. But in Israel, you have to write in your ID card or the, the form that you fill in, what is the land of origin of your father? At least in my generation, it was like that. Maybe now it changes. You have to say whether you where you not the mother the father where your father was born, you know, yeah. So even if you changed your name to a Hebrew name, everybody has have to know, and there are significant differences between Yemenites and Persians, and uh, it's like you know different classes and Moroccans, and even between the Maghrebis, you know the the Moroccans and Tunisians and Algerians and Libyans and each one has their own food, their own pride, their own thing and their own, you know, stereotypes. But in the 
thinking about myself, what it did to me, you know, as a person, how it constructed my identity. And I think I still, you know, can see those traits within me. We are supposed to be very uh, easygoing and very, you know, artistic uh, in terms of, you know, performing good singers and maybe musicians and maybe we can do things with hands like jewelry indeed my grandfather was a jeweler my father was a jeweler that's what we're good for you know in the israeli discourse is always yemenites are the jokers and the, those who who make music which is interesting because it's it's something that has to do with the bigger stereotypes maybe about Yemen. It's called Yemen and Said, you know, in, in Arabic, the cheerful Yemen. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just kind of a little bit associations in my mind come. But the thing is that if you are playing by the rules and you are Ofra Haza, you know who is Ofra Haza? Ofra Haza is one of the Yemenite singers that was that became very popular, I think, in the 80s or 90s or something like that. Very, very beautiful Yemeni with a little golden voice you know and she became also kind of a hit record in the U.S. and she was also singing in Hebrew and in English uh, traditional Yemeni songs even now you see a lot of musicians not only from Yemen also from Morocco as well but that's like okay these Oriental Jews they are good in the music you know kind of scene in the army positions also you know they like to see Jews of color you know, becoming good soldiers. Um, but in academia, our representation is so low. Yeah, yeah. The discrimination is that deep. And most of those who did remain in Israeli universities, of at least our generations that should, was supposed to become better, you know, uh, were non-tenured. I guess that mirrors some of the discrimination that we've I've heard about in Israeli society more broadly in different ways for different communities, obviously. But what's really interesting to hear that uh, your community had its it was OK if you stayed in your lane. I guess it the equivalent would be the stereotypes about black people being good at music and sport. Right. So it's interesting to hear even within and, not, and perhaps to non-Jewish listeners to understand that within the Jewish community or within the Israeli society, there is even for other Jews, a huge amount of ethnic specific discrimination, even though we're all meant to be Jews, even if they have the DNA, right, even if they have the Jewish gene, they're still, well, yeah, but you're good at that stuff. It highlights the fundamental problems with the whole idea of race full stop but it does highlight that it's common in Israeli society as well in in its own way as everywhere else we're going to come back to some of the the sort of those deeper topics but I just thought because you mentioned it you mentioned food and I thought I'd ask you what's on your plate oh it's things to be honest that I normally don't eat like kugel and you know kugel yeah okay. this or gefilte so, fish just... okay so everybody these are... laughs about gefilte fish but when i think about my heritage food if you like yes yes okay it's either the yemenite soup with the hilbe and the lahouh uh-huh. or melawah or sometimes i'm like oh salmon in the oven with 
potatoes. So there are some food items that are specifically Jewish, but what is specifically Jewish, even in my own, you know, heritage, are those things that are prepared especially for festivals or for the weekends because, you know, Friday, Saturday, you can't cook, right? So mm -hmm. there are those special food items. So for the Yemenites, it's the jachnun, you know. This is Tell me what this is. Tell me. Oh, it's, well, most of the food of <laughs> Yemeni Jews, at least, uh, I think also Yemen is by and large, is made of some kind of flour, of dough. Mm -hmm. And jachnun, I think, is made... But not, I think, I know it's made of uh, white flour, which is, I think, was not the kind of staple food in, in Yemen. But for Saturday, they make it, they spread it, and then you you kind of plaster it with lots of kind of ghee. Okay. You're yeah. winning me already. Keep going. It's, so let's yeah, just get this clear. The Yemeni nice ghee. dough with butter, loads of ghee butter, lots and then layered. And then so you layered it, and then you you fold it, and then you again, uh, how you say? Uh, knead it. Knead it. Uh -huh. And then again, you open it very, very thin, and you spread another, you know. <laughs> it's very tedious. My mom, my Dutch mom used to do it. It's very tedious work. Now they can buy it in the supermarket frozen, but there is no comparison, you know, that's Jahnun is Jahnun. And then you make those kind of rolls out of this thing. And then you put it in a special pot that you put in the oven and you keep the oven on very, very low heat that it cooks all through the night. I don't think there is sugar in it, but it tastes almost sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my <laughs> mouth's watering. As, as you're describing it, I mean, I'm, I, I haven't had it, but I feel like my mouth is telling me that I need to have it. You eat it with ground tomato, with chili paste inside, and lemon and salt. So this would be the breakfast meal on the Shabbat morning. Yeah. So before going to the synagogue or before beginning the day, it's food that's delicious. You've brought a picture to mind of... Uh, the mix, which sounds very familiar to me, uh, of a mix of your Ashkenazi and Yemeni heritage. But that's that sort of grounding of food in with your identity is it's however much we intellectualize or we think about whatever identity is or isn't. And I really love your phrase, identity is overrated. Good food bloody isn't overrated. It's Awesome. We are all very proud of our food. We like to feed others. Food is a form of communication. So, Fira, how do you Jew? What is Jewish life for you? Did you go to shul? Did you have a bat mitzvah? Yeah. Uh, oof. I don't know. It's a good question. Um... You need a community and the family and the festivals and the holidays. I think not only for Judaism, for every religion, to think that religion is an individual thing as a religious study scholar, I can mm. tell you, I think it's a, it's, you know, okay, of course, faith is an aspect of religion, but I think for religion, there needs to be a community, a practicing community. 
Now, I am a migrant and I actually don't have a Jewish community here to relate to. I always feel like, you know, if I want to, so I want, it's, it's my Jewishness is experiencing with my family in Amsterdam, those who are left there, whenever I travel there for a wedding or a bar mitzvah or something and I go to the shul with them. Uh, then I connect because it is my family, even though, you know, I can understand what's going on more or less. Uh, I haven't been to the shul for many years, you know, when I was a teenager already, uh, when I was like on my way to adulthood, I already felt very much alienated to Judaism for different reasons. It felt mm -hmm. oppressive, it felt wrong. Mm -hmm. Actually, when I was a teenager, I tried to become a more observant Jew. <clears throat> I was looking for the spirituality, you know, from <clears throat> what they call Chazara B'Tshuva. I don't know if you know Hebrew, but there is... No, uh, of... but more also, other listeners might not. So if you could explain it, that'd be helpful. Yes, yeah, so basically the meaning is that a Jew starts, you know, becoming more observant and more... And, kind of engaged in fulfilling the <laughs> 613 commandments. Yes. And becomes more and more in different ways. It can take different ways. Uh, it's like becoming more radical Jew, you know, or more yeah. conservative or more, it's like imagine, you know, also Muslims, again, I'm comparing to Muslims. Sometimes Muslims say, oh, I need to go more to the mosque and to pray more. And maybe if it's a woman, she starts putting a scarf and, mm -hmm. you know, or disassociating, you know, stop drinking alcohol or stop going to see movies and things like that. So there is this also kind of trend in Judaism, becoming more and more observant. So... There was a period in which it was like, you know, the secular Jews wanted to be something else. And then they would, okay, this is one of the most natural things that you do, that you start, you know, studying and following all those kinds of exotic people, you know, <laughs> rabbis mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. things like that. And for some time I was, uh, I joined the Breslev Yeshiva. Uh, also... It, it was, you know, when it, when you are about to Shuvah in Israel, when you are, you know, becoming more religious, let's say so, uh, you have your own status within the Orthodox community. You are not now viewed, there is no difference between, stark differences between whether you are in Ashkenazi or at least the in my experience, it was like that. They don't care because actually what you are is a different animal. Yes. You will not yep. be married with their children. You will never be integrated in their community. You will always be put in some kind, you know, the yeshiva I was in was especially for Chozrot Betshuva, for women that became, or young women. I was young, but there were older women that became more religious, you know. <clears throat> it was a different... And actually now, you know, sorry that I'm going back to the very disturbing and concerning and alarming situation in Israel, but I had some friends who also joined the Breslev. I don't think they are still Breslevers now or anything like that, but, you know, one of the most radical groups now in Israel that is causing a lot of trouble and is, is the Breslev Chosrim B'Tshuva faction. 
their yeshiva was called Shuvu Banim. I know, I know some people who joined them. Mm-hmm. Some of them lost their minds after some time. Some of them just became normal, but married a religious Hoseret uh, Betshuva and had children and lived like Orthodox people. But over the years, this yeshiva became so radical. Now the head of this yeshiva is, I don't know if you heard of Rabbi Barland. You heard uh, of him? Uh, nope. Nope. Well, I heard of him first in Amsterdam. He, he's, a, he's a sexual abuser. He's a pedophile or a rapist. I'm not sure what. But he was accused. And he escaped in Israel. He was uh, persecuted. And he escaped with all of his uh, devotees, disciples, to Amsterdam. And I know about this because my uncle was at the time the head of uh, or, or a very you know important leadership position in the Amsterdam Jewish community, and he had a huge headache. I visited him at the time, and he said, "Oh, I have to go to court, and we have so many problems." And because this Barland and his gang mm. of devotees, they just kind of settled in parks in Amsterdam. And started living in the street, you know, and like begging money. And it was very embarrassing for the Jewish community there. Again, I can't remember the whole story. Maybe there's there's a link I can add here. But mm-hmm. eventually, he was returned to Israel. And now I don't know how he escaped persecution and courts because he raped somebody or there were sexual abuse or pedophilia. I I don't remember what precisely, but something really kind of scandalous. Uh, and he behaves in a scandalous way, like a cult leader. And now his group decided that they identified an old uh, Jewish saint tomb or the, the tomb of Isaiah, or I don't know what, uh, in Stella Maris church and monastery in Haifa. Oh, right. In a and monastery, they, in a Christian, in a Christian, yes. Christ, oh. And they demand their freedom to pray there. They just fabricated, they invented a tomb that doesn't exist. And the poor priests there, they say, you know, this is our altar. This is, you know, it's not a tomb, it's our altar. And we Christians, we would never build an altar on a tomb of a saint, you know, because this is also our saint. So if he was buried here, we would have known, we would have told you, you know. (laughs) I mean... It's horrendous. So I'm telling you all this story because in the past 30 years, even 40 years, you know, well, I'm not that old, but yeah, maybe I am. It's almost 40 years since then. (laughs) Almost 40 years since then that I first heard of Breslau and I joined them for some time and it was like, you Mm -hmm. know, you started reading Rabbi Nachman and Rabbi Nata and his disciple and and it's very spiritual, and we started reading together Sefer Yetzirah and thinking about all those spiritual worlds, but at some time, that kind of religiosity ended up as some cult group that is very sick and dangerous. Mm. I and Chozrim Betshuva have this potential, and the, those who kind of recruit them, they are a little bit like missionaries, mm. you know, who recruit them, kind of brainwash them to say that we're Choser Betshuva, Baal Tshuva, or like a Jew that became more religious. That it's it's more like 
to repent, you know, mm. to kind of it's closer to it's closer to the Christian idea, you know, of repenting, of identifying yourself as they they say a, a baby that was captive, you know, a captivated baby, because you were born to in a secular environment, it's not your fault. Well, it's a bit like yeah. it's original sin. You couldn't help it, but now you must repent your way out of it. So you started asking these big questions about who made me, where am I mm. from, you know, and those big questions, you are looking for answers. So you are like returning to that roots of your Jewishness because you never mind that you were born secular, you have the Jewish whatever it is, gene, mm. spark, depending from which perspective, you know, you look mm. at it, but you can't escape your Jewishness in this scheme. You are always a Jew. And of course, you are always persecuted as Jews. It's there in the prayers. I am a Hebrew speaker. That's the yeah. difference between us. Yeah, and Jews... I, you know, in the translation, it's, I think there's a, there's a, um, there is a repeating uh, message throughout the prayers that of oppression i wonder whether there's something that's sort of uh necessarily european <laughs> in that um in that choice of prayers and the messaging that we're telling ourselves because a lot of praying is to the is to yourself right you're speaking to yourself if you believe there's a god you're speaking to god but you are also speaking to yourself you're telling yourself that... something over and over yes so that's actually what i thought when mm. I started this journey when I was like 17 years old, you know, ah. I was there only like it, it was a phase in my life. It, then it shifted to Bhagavad Gita and other interesting stuff. One of the reasons I started like, yes, okay, it's, you become spiritual, you speak to God, right? You, you have this kind of, okay. And, but then you find yourself in a system and I'm just, explaining here why I felt alienated. I'm not mm. telling that this is what I think about this system now, not as a scholar, not as a person, but this is why I felt alienated because I thought like you, I am now entering a discipline that is supposed to make me a better person mm -hmm. that would live better with myself, you know, that will have, that will change my consciousness, right? That I will have better connection with God Almighty, whatever is there, right? That's, but no, Judaism is not about this kind of inward reflection. That's the mistake, I think. Judaism is about what you do. And actually, that's also, you know, academically speaking, it's not orthodoxy, it's orthopraxis. It's not an uh -huh. orthodoxical, you know, it's not based on do doxa is coming from dogma, I think, right? Yes. And dogma has to do with the belief, right? What do you believe in that makes you a Christian? Yes. But in Judaism, is, we really don't, we, we can't give a damn, you know, what you believe in. Of course, you have to, it's what you, you know, it's what you do and when and how. Do you know, that relates to uh, something that I, because I, for a long time, have called myself a bad Jew, right? It's, there's a whole conversation <laughs> about that, that myself, right? Yeah. right? And whenever I meet someone at shul or I make a joke about that and they say, come to shul and I say, oh, you know, I'm a bad Jew. I don't really do this thing. And they say, it doesn't matter. You don't believe. Just come. It's enough that you come. Come be with It's lovely. And I do enjoy the singing. I love being in the room. It, there is a, 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 
a spirit that not not a, a sort of spiritual thing but i can feel something in the room that is about communal behavior and and they're like that's enough come and do it really fits with what you just said about it being about the action think about it think about it why is it important because in order to carry the jewish prayer you need 10 men adults yeah. yes Right now, yes. even if you don't know how to pray and you don't know what to do and you're a complete outsider, they need, so there is this. That's why I'm, I keep on saying this is a communal affair. Mm -hmm. You need a community. Okay, and I wanted to add something to this line of conversation, and that is that you know the prayers. We talked about the prayers. In diaspora Jew, Judaism, you need to see the translation. But of course, when you pray, you can read the Hebrew. I mean, if you are, even if you are not a strongly practicing Jew, you can hit the, hit, uh, read the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. In Marathi, for example, they used to put next to the Hebrew prayers also the Hebrew in Marathi script which is very friendly, you know, for readers because it can very accurately represent the, the Hebrew language. So you it doesn't matter what it means. It matters how you pronounce it, how you recite it, how you sing it. You have to sing it according to the tune of the specific community and the tune makes a big difference, okay? And here comes the, the problem that I had because you have to pray three times a day, okay? And of course, uh, during the weekend, there is the synagogue and you have all those special lengthy prayers. They're pretty long. There is a prayer book. It's the liturgy. And I'm not talking about all the PU team and the, you know, the, I'm talking about the set prayer that doesn't change more or less. Mm -hmm. What you say after you finished eating food what you say, blessing the wine and, the, and all the blessings and all those fixed prayers, they were fixed in 10th century Iraq. Didn't know that. Yes, it's that old. Wow. And when you are a Hebrew speaker, well, at least the Hebrew that I learned, I'm not sure whether now the generation, they, there is a growing distance between spoken Hebrew and the Hebrew of the prayer and the Hebrew of the Bible, etc. You know, every stage is more difficult to understand. Of course, there is this gap. But I was quite good at Hebrew, at biblical Hebrew, and so I, I can understand a lot of what I read. And I used to read it and, and I used to feel depressed. Hmm. I used to feel, you know, that the words that I'm saying actually put me down. Yeah. Make me feel persecuted oppressed mm. every day you know make me feel like i should you know i should <sighs> go him you know go him is like let us be frank about it you know my context of course is very different from rabbi sadia gaon who composed the, you know or compiled the prayers in 10th century iraq okay and there are also all those different levels, especially in Iraq. I mean, they didn't have such a bad time there between us, you know. But this kind of goyim and goyim and goyim, it's like a trope that is returning and we want to go back to our land and the Messiah and blah, blah, blah. But nobody really means it. 
why do they say it? Why are those layers? I'm not sure. And Rabbi Seder Gaon was, you know, <laughs> it's very well known that the Jewish prayer the, in the morning that you say is you say, oh, uh, thank you, God, you know, bless God. It's bless God, right? Baruch Adonai, Shelo Asani Isha. That didn't make me a woman, you know? It's one of the most... So imagine this guy sitting in Baghdad or whatever, wherever he was, Basra, I think he was from probably from Baghdad and he's sitting there and he's, you know, and thinking, okay, what should men tell God in the morning? You know, so, okay, thank goodness. You know, he looks maybe his wife, you know, <laughs> washing the clothes in the morning, working hard, already in the kitchen cooking breakfast and he's there. He's like, oh, thank goodness, I'm not a woman. That's a good idea <laughs> I've never thought about it like that. (laughs) (laughs) You have to repeat it, you know. Yeah. So at some point, you read all these texts. Some of them were written, you know, you have also the the kind of Gemara and the the commentaries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are layers and layers of words that you sit with, with all day long. And you learn with this rabbi and that rabbi. And you do the prayers all the time and blah, 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 blah. But... As a Hebrew speaker who reads those things in Hebrew, you know, the meaning matters for me maybe more than it matters for somebody like your father or grandfather who, or even my own father, you know, they spoke Arabic, they understood mm-hmm. the Hebrew, but for them, the focus was on the accents that are, re- you know, they are kind mm-hmm. of marked also yeah. in re- yeah. re- uh, reading the Bible. And the tunes of the prayer, and you have to do it together. And you shouldn't, the pronunciation of the words is very important. They would have somebody in the synagogue can start, especially the Yemenites, if the main reader, you know, starts reading and makes a mistake, they start shouting, uh, say it again, say it again, chazo, chazo, you know, <laughs> you made a mistake, you should just read it again, you know, almost like Brahmins, you know, in India. You, you, you went on quite a journey of exploration into your spirituality it sounds like you got knocked back right you know you went with good intentions with the right spirit wanting to discover something whether it was there or not whether it's true or not but you went with an open heart to explore that and it sounds like you were knocked back because it's actually the 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 group or the the sort of the direction of that particular uh community that um yeshiva uh, by the way, Yeshiva is a religious school. Um, mm. I'll put that in the show notes for people listening. Uh, it's probably equivalent to a madrasa in for for Muslims. Um, but it's, it sounds like in in Arabic it would be majlis. Ah. You know, I'm not yeah. sure this is the same thing in Arabic, majlis and yeshiva. But uh-huh. it's also a very old word word coming yeah. from the you know Arabic speaking world because that's where Judaism started developing. Yes. So it's a place where people sit. It comes from the root to sit. It's a sitting, you know? Because people sit together and discuss the rabbis, what they said, and, you know, and the stories and the commentaries. And they are very beautiful texts. Now, after I studied, I had to read the stuff again, not as a believer, but as a scholar. Uh, There are very beautiful things that, you know, are, are there strewn through the text. As you said, the Bible, you know, psalms or uh, any other part of the bible some of it is very boring some of it is very juicy some of it is very <laughs> interesting some of them is very upsetting yeah. you know some of it it's it's, it's very it's, it's it's a piece of literature that was put together from different sources and 
and in different ways and different textures. So also the prayer is composed of such elements and the PU team and what is important for people to perform in a certain holiday, in the family or in the synagogue, it's the ritual. Jews don't like to think about it as ritual, as if ritual is idol worshiping. But mm-hmm. Jewish ritual is very, very ritualistic, oh, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know. So it's the action that you do, it's the way you pronounce, it's but in Israel, it's like it's very sad for me to see because as somebody who studied the communities that are no longer, you know, or studying now communities that do not lo- no longer exist in mm-hmm. the Asian regions, in different regions, in Afghanistan, in Bukhara, there were very old and, you know, fascinating Jewish communities, integrated, diversified, indigenized, uh, uh, different types of, of Judaisms. It's not one thing. And in Israel, it has to be one thing because we have one state, yes. one language. Yep. So I am like stripped off my you know, both ancestral and, you know, maternal heritage. I, I can't, sp- I can barely speak Dutch. I can barely speak Arabic. And it's such a loss, you know, it's such a loss. And who speaks Hebrew in the world, you know, to be a native Hebrew speaker in the wider world is like, oh gosh, you know, how many Hebrew speakers are there? So yeah, it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit of a tragedy because it looks like this Jewish state and this movement to save Jews from persecution in Europe and some would argue also in the Arab world in some periods. Okay, there's a huge mm-hmm. debate around that, but okay, let's say fine. But what what have we done? We mm-hmm. actually. And I don't think culture is more important than the people and their lives and livelihoods. But if we think about Judaism and what makes Judaism is the diversity, is the spread, it's the networks. And we lost it as much as we yeah. lost it in the Holocaust for European Jews. We lost it for uh, Asian Jews. It's it's really tragic. <laughs> but, uh, academics like like yourself are exploring and trying to uncover to document these histories and and explore that because for me it's much more personal because it's trying to make sense of this split within me that I can there's my Jew my Jewish identity only makes sense to the world with one version of what a Jew is and yet even a brief scant look at my heritage tells me it's much more complicated I am really optimistic about the work that you're doing and the sort of growing academic exploration because it starts to put facts to what was just anecdotal, family stories. Eloquently, you've brought to your own identity these strands of big, the strands of these big themes around what it means to be Jewish, where the Jewish experience can be situated geographically how diverse it is how many opportunities there are to rebuild really sort of quite ancient connections you've been an amazing guest i desperately (laughs) want to talk more to you about some of these things i had about another four or five questions each of which would probably have taken us an hour to get through it was a pleasure for me as well thank you so much for your time i understand you better i understand myself a bit better 
thanks to you. And thank I really you. look forward to the next chance we talk. And thank you so much, Afira. Inshallah, thank you for having me. This has been another episode of the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with me, Elan Ezekiel. And I wanted to thank Dr. Afira Gamliel for her time and expertise. Um, and most of all, for um, thanks so much to Afira for, for her time and sharing her story with us. I really enjoyed listening to her. And it's really. Uh, and as I record now in January of 2024, I look back on the conversation I had with Afira back in September of 2023. And obviously, a lot has changed since then, both in and around talking about Israel and identities in that uh, in relation to Palestine, but also in relation to Yemen, which is currently in the news. And, you know, it doesn't look like that's going in a particularly nice direction, but we all obviously hope for peace. But Afira's um, historical and cultural story reminds us that these places and that these histories have important lessons for us for the future as well as to tell us about the past thank you for listening we seek to amplify the voices of underrepresented jewish people so it's great to have you along to hear them exploring the universe whether you are jewish or just jew curious please take a look at the show notes and you can find more about where we are on various socials, including Blue Sky, Facebook, and other places. Please like and subscribe if you can. Review or rate our podcast episodes because that really helps us. And I hope we will see you again and explore the universe together asking, who do you think you are?